One of the most encouraging and hopeful signs I have observed for many a long day in evangelical circles has been a renewed and increasing interest in the writings of Bishop J.C. Ryle. In his day, he was famous, outstanding, and beloved as a champion and exponent of the evangelical and reformed faith. For some reason or another, however, his name and his works are not familiar to modern evangelicals. His books are, I believe, all out of print in this country and very difficult to obtain second-hand. Well, so wrote uh, Martin, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in 1956 for the reprint of Ryle's Holiness by James Clark and Company. Lloyd-Jones, being a great leader, as many of us know, among non-Anglican uh, evangelicals during the 1950s. Lloyd-Jones said that he just happened to stumble across Ryle's Holiness uh, in the 1930s in a second-hand bookshop. I shall never forget the satisfaction, spiritual and mental, with which I read it. He then uh, summarizes Ryle and his work like this. The characteristics of Bishop Ryle's method and style are obvious. He is preeminently and always scriptural and expository. He never starts with a theory into which he tries to fit various scriptures. He always starts with the word and expounds it. It is exposition at its very best and highest. It is always clear and logical and invariably leads to a clear enunciation of doctrine. It is strong and virile and entirely free from the sentimentality that is often described as devotional. The bishop had drunk deeply from the wells of the great classical Puritan writers of the 17th century. Indeed, it would be but accurate to say that his books are a distillation of true Puritan theology presented in a highly readable and modern form. Two questions then arise. Why was Ryle not read, and why is he still not read? Uh, during his lifetime, uh, his tracts, the papers that uh, in the end made up most of his books and were basically printed sermons, were sold uh, in his lifetime literally all over the world and literally in their millions. Why was it that his near-contemporary Bishop Handy Mole of Durham suffered a different fate? Why then was Ryle not read and why is he still not read? That's the first question. The second question is simpler and more easy to answer. Why should he be read now? Well, during the course of uh, this paper, I will try uh, to answer those questions. And I propose to think about uh, Ryle under the following uh, three headings. First, Ryle the man. Uh, second, Ryle the minister. And thirdly, Ryle the missionary. First of all, let me tell you something about Ryle the man. Uh, he died, or to use uh, the words of the title of one of his famous tracts, he went home at last, aged 85, on the 10th of June, 1900, just over 100 years ago. Uh, he was then buried beside his third wife, all three had predeceased him, at All Saints Childwell on the slope of a hill looking south across the Mersey into Cheshire. Uh, Childwell, at the time a rural parish, was where Ryle used to go to be quiet and have time off when he was Bishop of Liverpool on his day off uh, with his wife, uh, weekly almost. And Liz Holgate, who's a member of Jesmond Parish Church, was a member of All Saints Chidwell and tells of an elderly member of the congregation who could reminisce about Bishop Ryle. Her uh, sister had actually worked for him. 
The Sunday following his death, Richard Hobson, who was a close friend, uh, a clergyman in the diocese and at whose church Ryle used to worship when he was not on duty elsewhere and free from other engagements, uh, Hobson was preaching at the cathedral, the provisional cathedral as it was, and spoke of Ryle uh, and his greatness in these terms. He was great through the abounding grace of God. He was great in stature, great in mental power, great in spirituality, great as a preacher and expositor of God's word, most holy word, great in hospitality, great in winning souls to God, great as a writer of gospel tracts, great as an author of works which will long live, great as a bishop of the Reformed Evangelical Protestant Church of England, of which he was a noble defender, great as the first bishop of Liverpool. I'm bold to say that perhaps few men in the 19th century did so much for God, for truth, for righteousness, among the English-speaking world and in the world as our late bishop. Others agreed that he was one of the greatest of the Victorian evangelicals. Uh, his successor at Liverpool was uh, F.J. Chavas, and he described him as that man of granite with the heart of a child. That's the title of a new biography, which you can get uh, on the bookstall outside, uh, by Eric Russell. And Charles Spurgeon, another great Victorian evangelicals, described Ryle as the best man in the Church of England. <laughs> Well, a hundred years later, I would suggest that Hobson's was a pretty fair assessment. What makes a man great, Packer says, you need at least achievement and universality. In a thing uh, he wrote, commenting on Ryle. In Ryle's case, there was the achievement of establishing a brand new diocese, that's uh, Liverpool, which had just been split off from Chester when Ryle went there. Uh, but perhaps more importantly, there was the achievement of his national evangelical leadership. Before going to Liverpool, Ryle was a country parson, as we'll see in Suffolk, uh, ending up at Stradbroke Parish Church, where he went the year our own church, Jesuit Parish Church, was founded in 1861. And while there, he was considered the leader of the evangelicals in the Church of England. And he led through his preaching and teaching and travelling uh, he also led through the other uh, and huge great achievement which I've referred to his writing. He was a brilliant writer. Uh, unlike many Victorians and particularly religious writers, he is still readable today. Uh, may I say, in his exact form, there's two versions of books out there. Some are kind of modernised and some are <coughs> genuine Ryle. Uh, I won't ask which John approves of. Um, uh, thank you. Uh, but he's still readable, just as uh, when he wrote... Then in addition to his achievement, Ryle was great because of this quality of universality. Let me quote Packer on this. Great men impress us as men not simply raised up for their own day, but as men who are there raised up by God, as we Christians would say, for the benefit and the blessing of generations other than their own. I think that's a, a wise saying. And Ryle certainly uh, is of huge value to us. Well, Ryle was a Victorian, and the Victorians have often had a bad press, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly. There was the class system and the social structure, which uh, we find difficult today. Uh, that did affect Ryle uh, in a number of ways. Indeed, the existence of social class was the context for one of the defining moments uh, in Ryle's own life. Ryle had been born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was uh, educated at Eton and after Eton at Oxford University, where he did extremely well academically and uh, sportingly. 
He was a distinguished classicist. In fact, he was one of the top three students in his degree year. Today, he would have been said to have received a congratulatory first. He also captained Oxford at cricket in one university match, taking ten wickets. And he rode in the boat race. And he was a remarkable man, a total all-rounder. Later in life, he claimed that his sporting experience gave him leadership gifts. Quote, it gave me a power of commanding, managing, organising and directing, seeing through men's capabilities and using every man in the post to which he was best suited, bearing and forbearing, keeping men around me in good temper, which I have found of infinite use on lots of occasions in life, though in very different matters. However, Oxford was greatly important for Ryle spiritually, especially in his last months at Oxford. He'd been made to think about eternity during a period of illness. After he recovered, he found himself in a church one Sunday, arriving late. <laughs> he was just in time for the second Bible reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And uh, the lesson reader, we are told, read clearly and distinctly with a pause between each phrase. Now, this may seem artificial to us, but it had a profound effect on Ryle. The words, for by grace... Are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, worked in Ra's life. They went from his head to his heart, and he now understood what the gospel of grace and salvation through faith in Christ alone really meant. Now, for the context of Ryle's conversion, remember that the year Ryle went up to Oxford was 1834. The university at that time was buzzing with new Tractarianism, the Anglo-Catholic movement that Newman had started with Keeble's aside sermon entitled National Apostasy, preached the year before in 1833. Ryle's late arrival at that church and his hearing of the lesson from Ephesians was in the early summer of 1837. That is, uh, four years later. And uh, as an aside, can I say the uh, Reverend uh, J.W. Diggle, who served under Ryle in Liverpool before being uh, made Bishop of Carlisle, uh, used to impress upon his ordinance that Bishop Ryle owed his conversion to the reading of a lesson in church, uh, I, not by a tract or a sermon, but the simple reading of the Bible. Well, I'm afraid you could also say that Ryle was converted by being late to church. Uh, that is what gave impact to the lesson. It was the first thing Ryle heard. My wife, actually, being someone who's always early, uh, said that if Ryle had regularly got to church in time, he might have been converted earlier. <laughs> Be that as it may, uh, Ryle was not the best at timekeeping because when later in life he was uh, at Stradbrook and had to go to London a lot, he, um, uh, he used to have to get a... He, he had a carriage and and so forth or whatever too. and uh, he was often late for the train and uh, when he asked the driver uh, what the time was he said well, make the horses go faster make the horses go faster and the people used to live in fear and trembling of Ryle going to the station <laughs> be that as it may Ryle looked back on his conversion in his autobiography uh, that he wrote in 1873 he wrote this autobiography actually for his children uh, this was 40 years later and um, and it reviewed his life up to 1860, that is, uh, when he went to Stradbrook. Uh, and he says, in order, he tells us, that my children may possess some accurate account of my history of my life after I'm dead. So speaking of his conversion, he says this, writing all these years later, you know. 
It may interest my children to know what were the points in religion by which my opinions at this period of my life became strongly marked, developed and decided. And what were the principles which came out into strong, clear and distinct relief when this great change came over me? Nothing I can remember to this day appeared to me so clear and distinct as my own sinfulness. Christ's preciousness, the value of the Bible, the absolute necessity of coming out of the world, the need of being born again, and the enormous folly of the whole doctrine of baptismal regeneration. All these things seem to flash upon me like a sunbeam in the winter of 1837, and are stuck in my mind from that time down to this. People may account for such a change as they like. My own belief is that it was what the Bible calls conversion or regeneration. Before that time I was dead in sins and on the high road to hell. And from that time I have become alive and had a hope of heaven. And nothing to my mind can account for it but the free sovereign grace of God. Undoubtedly God had also been working uh, in his life earlier, not least when he was at school at Eton. Uh, being here in Elswick, I ought to mention uh, that uh, while he was at school at Eton, he uh, was encouraged to try for the Newcastle, yes, the Newcastle Scholarship. Uh, that was a divinity prize established by the Duke of Newcastle in 1829, just uh, uh, a few years, uh, um, well, it must have been while uh, he was in the junior forms at Eton. Candidates had to do a detailed study of the 39 articles of religion, the Church of England's 39 articles, and sit an examination, and the top three boys uh, were given a grant of £50 each, which was a great deal of money in those days. Ryle came fourth. Uh, he was disappointed, naturally, uh, as at this time he didn't show a great interest in Christian things. He probably just wanted the money. But um, this piece of study gave him an understanding of Christian doctrine he never had before. And uh, he looked back on this experience as one of the most significant in his life. Uh, this is what he wrote later on in his book, Knots Untied. It is a simple fact that the beginning of any clear doctrinal views I ever attained myself was reading the articles for the Newcastle Scholarship and attending a lecture at Christchurch, Oxford on the articles by my college tutor. I shall always thank God for what I learnt then. Before that time, I really knew nothing systematically of Christianity. I knew not what came first or what last. I had a religion without order in my head. What I found good myself, I commend to others. Well, so much for Eton and Oxford. He then went back home to his family estate in Macclesfield, which, as the eldest son, he expected to inherit after making his way in law and politics. Uh, his father was not too enamoured of the new convert, however. Uh, Ryle describes uh, this time as follows. I was training much and learning much in passing through a school of experience which afterwards was very useful to me. I often think now that my chief fault in those days was that I was too much wrapped up in my own daily spiritual conflict and my own daily difficulties. I did not sufficiently aim at works of active usefulness to the souls of others. At the same time, it's but fair to say that it would be hard to point out what work there was that I could have done. Teaching, preaching, visitations, evangelization and such like work were out of the question. As long as I lived under my father's roof, they would have been strongly objected to and would have given great offence. It seems to me as if God intended that period of my life to be one of patient learning and not for active doing. But then something happened. 
His father's bank crashed, which he owned. His father became bankrupt, losing everything overnight. Here are Ralph's own words. My father was a wealthy man. He was a landed proprietor and a banker. I was the eldest son and looked forward to inheriting a large fortune. I was on the point of entering Parliament. I had all things before me until I was 25. But it then pleased God to alter my prospects in life through my father's bankruptcy. We got up one summer's morning with all the world before us as usual and went to bed that evening completely and entirely ruined. This had a profound effect on Raoul. Writing 25 years later, he wrote, With all the world before me, I lost everything and saw the whole future of my life turned upside down and thrown into confusion. If I hadn't been a Christian at that time, I do not know if I should have not committed suicide. As it was, everybody said how beautifully I behaved, how resigned I was, what an example of contentment I was. Never was there a more complete mistake. God alone knows how the iron entered into my soul, how my whole frame, body, mind and spirit reeled and was shaken to the foundation under the blow of my father's ruin. I am quite certain it inflicted a wound on my body and mind of which I feel the effects most heavily at this day and shall feel it if I live to be a hundred. To suppose that people do not feel things because they do not scream and yell and fill the air with their cries is simple nonsense. And he felt it very badly. The plain fact was there was no one of the family whom it touched more than it did me. My father and mother were no longer young and in the downhill of life. My brothers and sisters, of course, never expected to live at Henry. That, that's this big family home with this vast estate and worth vast sums of money. And naturally never thought of it as their house after a certain time. I, on the contrary, as the eldest son, 25, with all the world before me, lost everything and saw the whole future of my life turned upside down and thrown into confusion. <coughs> it, was not the on it was not only the sadness and the normal sense of loss that people can understand today. In Victorian society, and particularly due to the bank collapse, there was the disgrace. Although Ryle had no hand in the collapse, writing 30 years later, Ryle speaks of the humiliation of having to leave Henry this great estate. I do, this is Ryle. I do not think that there has ever been a single day in my life for 30 years that I have not remembered the great humiliation of having to leave Henry. During that 32 years, I have lived in many houses and been in many positions. I've always tried to make the best of them and to be cheerful in every circumstance. But nothing has made me forget my sudden violent expulsion from Cheshire in 1841. Ever since I left Cheshire, I have never felt at home but a sojourner and a dweller in a lodging. Partly this was because he needed now to earn his living for the very first time in his life, which for him meant ordination and working in country parishes, first for a short time uh, in Winchester, uh, and then for most of his time in, uh, not in Norwich, in the Norwich Diocese, for 39 years in all, and then for the last 20 years of his life in Liverpool uh, as uh, a bishop. And of course, all that time, he was living in, so to speak, tied houses that he didn't own. So this is the man... Packer describes him as massive, nearly six feet four and strong as a horse, though he confessed to needing much sleep. 
and his brains, energy, vision, drive, independence, clear head, kind heart, fair mind, salty speech, good sense, contempt for stupidity, firmness of principle, and freedom from inhibitions, not to mention an awesome personal aloofness, would have made him a formidable leader and manager in any field. A deep, though private, conversion experience when he was 21, together with the subsequent traumas of poverty, family shame, and the chronic illness and death of two wives over a period of 15 years, gave him an uncommon measure of authority when he spoke of Christ's power to meet human need. I have the, the Vanity Fair picture of Ryle, dated 26th of March, 1881, in my study at Teslington House, and he does look massive. Uh, actually, I was lectured at Oxford by his grandson, the uh, philosopher Gilbert Ryle, uh, sadly someone not known for his, as a Christian, but someone who had his grandfather's gift for simplicity and clarity, and he too was massive, and, and looked to come from the same stock. But before we leave the subject of Ryle the man, something must be said of his family life. After his short period of work in Hampshire, first in Exbury and then uh, in Winchester itself, Ryle found himself in Helmingham in Suffolk and a parish of 200 people, 300 people. Uh, he would uh, be earning there 500 pounds a year. Uh, those were the days when uh, there were wide differentials in clergy salaries. And this was very attractive. It's a huge amount of money, actually, uh, for today. Um, a huge amount of money, really. But it was very attractive to someone like Ra with his Victorian upper-class attitudes because it would allow him, so he thought, to marry. Ra was never sure whether he'd done the right thing, actually, in leaving Winchester. Uh, he later wrote, Of all the steps I ever took in my life to this day, I feel doubts whether the move was right or not. I sometimes think it was a want of faith to go and I ought to have stayed. However, he went. And he soon married. He'd read the lives of the evangelicals of the 18th century uh, and uh, seen how some of them had had unhappy marriages. Uh, for example, John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield. So he's going to take special care. And he had three criteria for the choice of a wife. He wrote, The great thing I always desired to find was a woman who was a Christian, who was a real lady... And who was not a fool. <laughs> Whether I was successful or not, others must judge better than I can. But I call God to witness, these were the three points I always kept steadily in view. And it was always because he married three times. First at Helmingham, he married Matilda, a woman who clearly fitted all the criteria, on the 29th of October, 1845. Within a year, Georgina was born, but within a few weeks, Matilda was seriously ill and died on the 18th of June, 1847. They were married uh, for under two years. Three years later, on the 21st of February, 1850, he married Jessie, another woman who again fitted all the criteria. But within six months of the marriage, she too became ill and hardly recovered over the ten years of their marriage. She eventually died on the 19th of May, 1860, after providing Ra with three sons, Reginald, Herbert and Arthur, and another daughter, Isabel. And within 18 months, he married again, Henrietta, according to Eric Russell, quotes, a lady of good birth, highly respected, well-educated, and a woman with a strong personal faith. And uh, Ryle married her on 24th October, 1861. And they lived happily together for many years, she being a good mother to uh, his children. She's also an uh, accomplished musician, an expert in uh, the new vogue of photography. 
And this um, marriage coincided with Ra's move from Helmingham to Stradbrook, which was one of the richest livings in the diocese, with an income of £1,050 per year. Just to put that in context, uh, I come from just about church, as you know, and the founders of JPC, they were Christians, there were all sorts of Archibaldi in the Church of England at the time, uh, as there are now, and as Ra was involved in, and they wanted an evangelical um, church because uh, problems have come at St. Thomas's. And um, they got the subscriptions and giving, and they lodged with the ecclesiastical commissioners, uh, as they were then called, a thousand pounds. Is that sort of um, they, they, they invested it then for the entire living of JPC, which that's to say the money was invested and that would provide an income for the vicar of Jesuit in those days. So out of that, just the, the annual return, you know, the profit or, or the income from that, provided the income for Jesmin, which in those days were thought to be a very, very uh, good living. Can you imagine it? The total money that was invested was £1,000. So Ra's annual income in Suffolk uh, was £1,000. So uh, uh, amazing, uh, really. Uh, when you think about it. And um, I think Raal at last thought, uh, you know, he could do fair by his wife. Uh, in fact, he enabled him to send his sons to Repton and Eton and so forth. That's by the way. So what was Raal's home life like? Well, Archdeacon James, one time headmaster of Malvern and uh, school friend of Reginald Herbert, recalled one of his visits to Stradbrook Vicarage during the school holidays. Mr. Raal quotes, with his gigantic and stentorian voice, was perhaps rather formidable to a youthful visitor. But he was very kind and hearty, and I soon felt at home. The atmosphere of the home was, like that of my own home, devotional, daily Bible readings, somewhat lengthy family prayers, and a good deal of religious talk. But it was all quite wholesome and unpretentious, and I don't think any of us were bored, much less cavil at the regime at any time, at any rate at that time. But life was not comfortable for Raoul, as may be gathered. Certainly, while at Helmingham, life was very hard because of his wife's illness. Listen to this. Few can have any idea how much wear and tear and anxiety of mind and body I had to go through for at least five years before my wife died. I very rarely ever slept out of our own house in order that I might be in the way if my, uh, might be in the way if my wife wanted anything. I have frequently, in the depth of winter, driven distances of 12, 15, 20, or even 30 miles in an open carriage to speak or preach, and then returned home the same distance immediately afterwards, rather than sleep away from my own house. As to holidays, rest, and recreation in the year, I have never had any at all. While the whole business of entertaining and amusing the three boys in an evening devolved entirely upon me. In fact, the whole state of things was a heavy strain upon me, both in body and mind, and I often wonder how I lived through it. Ra was undoubtedly schooled in the school of suffering, and this undoubtedly confirmed his faith in the sovereignty of God. He came to the view, I quote, that to feel trouble freely and yet submit to it patiently is what is required of a Christian. This is how he could write about his experience of the collapse of his father's bank, and uh, the consequences. I have not the least doubt it was all for the best. If my father's affairs had prospered, and I have ne had never been ruined, my life, of course, would have been a very different one. I should have probably gone into Parliament very soon, and it is impossible to say 
what the effect of this might have been upon my soul. I should have formed different connections and moved in an entirely different circle. I should never have been a clergyman, never have preached, written a tract or book. Perhaps I might have made shipwreck in spiritual things. So I do not mean to say at all that I wish it to have been different to what it was. Harvey then added these words. All I mean to say is that I was deeply wounded by my reverses, suffered deeply under them, and I do not think I've recovered body or mind from the effect of them. Well, he wrote that at Stradbrook, and after he was happily married to a woman who was robust and uh, had the good fortune to stay alive. Well, so much for Ryle the man. <coughs> Next, we need to think about Ryle the minister. Well, first there was his preaching. And uh, unlike Spurgeon, who I read regularly but find difficult, Ryle is simple and clear. Ryle was not only a clear writer because he was a clear thinker, he also studied to be clear. He wasn't just automatic. In his early days at Winchester, he spoke of his sermons being, quotes, far too florid and far less simple and direct than I afterwards found valuable. Nevertheless, they were thoroughly evangelical and being well composed and read with a great deal of earnestness and fire. I have no doubt they sounded very fine and effective, but I should not wish to preach them now. And in his book, The Upper Room, there is a paper entitled Simplicity in Preaching. Uh, it was a paper given to clergy much later uh, in St. Paul's Cathedral, and is still worth reading as expressing his mature views. And uh, he made five substantial points. First, have a clear view of the subject upon which you're going to preach. Secondly, try to use in your, all your sermons, as far as you can, simple words. Thirdly, take care to aim at a simple style of composition, which for him meant short sentences, and well, I mean that for all of us. Fourthly, use a direct style, i.e. using I rather than, and you rather than we. Uh, fifthly, use plenty of anecdotes and illustrations. So what was Ra's own preaching really like? Well, he certainly wanted it to be Christ-centered. Quotes, if there is no salvation except him by Christ, we must not be surprised if ministers of the gospel preach much about him. They cannot tell us too much about the name which is above every name. We cannot hear of him too much. We may hear too much about controversy in sermons. We may hear too much of works and duties, of forms and ceremonies, of sacraments and ordinances. But there's one subject which we never hear too much of. We can never hear too much of Christ. But how did people respond to his preaching? Well, a journalist once attended a service at Helmingham and reported as follows. The sermon was one of the longest we have met with. <laughs> but the earnestness of the preacher's manner and ever-ready flow of ideas, the simple yet forceful language and the wonderfully apt and forceful illustrations made the time pass very pleasantly. And we, who for that time at least had no pudding to be spoiled, were almost sorry when it concluded. <laughs> and uh, Ryle usually ended with a note of practical application. For example, in concluding The Best Friend, which you can read in his book Practical Religion, Ryle says this, If Christ is your friend, you have great privileges and ought to walk worthy of them. Seek every day to have closer communion with him, who is your friend, and to know more of his grace and power. True Christianity is not merely a believing of a certain set of dry abstract propositions. It is to live in daily personal communication with an actual living person, Jesus, the Son of God. To me, said Paul, 
to live is Christ. Seek every day to glorify your Lord and Saviour in all your ways. That was the sort of way Raal would be ending. Raal saw steady but not spectacular growth throughout his ministry. Uh, any lack of response saddened him, but he didn't despair. Uh, in a sermon he preached in Chester Cathedral in 1878, that's two years before moving to Liverpool, he told the congregation that the grand bell in St Paul's Cathedral in London had struck the hour for many years. The roar and din of traffic in the streets have a strange power to deaden its sound and prevent men hearing it. But when the daily work is over and desks are locked and doors are closed and books are put away and quiet reigns in the city, the case is altered. As the old bell at night strikes eleven and twelve and one and two and three, thousands hear it who never heard it during the day. So I hope it will be with many and one in the matter of his soul. Now in the plenitude of health and strength, in the hurry and whirl of business, I fear the voice of your conscience is often stifled and you cannot hear it. But the day may come when the great bell of conscience will make itself heard whether you like it or not. But Rao's services were not just lectures. He was a great lover of singing. Uh, he published collections of hymns. Spiritual Songs was his first collection of hymns for use at cottage meetings. Uh, there were then two more collections, Hymns for the Church on Earth, Selected for the Use of the Sick and Lonely, and the additional hymn book for general use. Uh, in the preface to this collection, he writes, I strongly hold that holy thoughts often abide forever in men's memories under the form of poetry, which pass away and are forgotten under the form of prose. He also comments on the increasing popularity of hymns in Christian meetings, saying, I regard with deep satisfaction the growing taste for hymn singing and praise as an essential part of Christian worship. It is the healthiest signs of our times. Nothing is so likely to heal our unhappy divisions and to make us of one mind as an increased spirit of praise as well as prayer. Raoul would like to have thought uh, his ministry was in line with the great Puritans. He had a great respect for Richard Baxter, the prince of the Puritans and rector of Kidderminster, famous for his reformed pastor. Of him, Raoul said this, While others were entangling themselves in politics and burying their dead among the potsherds of earth, Baxter was living a crucified life and daily preaching the gospel. I suspect he was the best and wisest pastor that an English parish ever had and a model that many a modern rector or vicar would do well to follow. And his general assessment of the Puritans that he followed was this. With all their faults, weaknesses and defects, they alone kept the lamp of pure evangelical religion burning in the times of the Stuarts. They alone prevented Lord's popish inclinations, carrying England back into the arms of Rome. It was they who fought the battle of religious freedom, of which we are reaping such fruits. It was they who crushed the wretched spirit of inquisitorial persecution, which misguided high churchmen tried to introduce into this land. Let us give them the honour they deserve. And while was a great believer in visiting, in his paper on simplicity in preaching, he tells of a humble country clergyman who was once asked whether he studied the fathers, meaning the early church fathers, to which the worthy man replied that he had little opportunity of studying the fathers, as they were generally in the fields when he called. <laughs> But he studied the mothers, more because he found them at home and could talk to them. Wittingly or unwittingly, Ralph says, the good man hit the nail right on the head 
We must talk to our people when we're out of church and we understand how to preach them when they're in church. So what was Ryle's ministry like in reality with his major work being done at Stradbrook? A contemporary sums it up as follows. In parish work, he was practical and thorough, taking great interest in the temporal as well as the spiritual welfare of his parishioners. Three services on Sundays, meetings during the week at different places. Well attended, bright and hearty congregational singing, service playing and forth. It's rather interesting to know because most people don't realise that, that uh, many people think this was just a, Ra was just involved in preaching shops. He did love music and his third wife was a, a distinguished musician uh, in her own right. Uh, bright and hearty congregational singing, service plain and forcible, rarely concluded without some words to boys and girls in the congregation. Ryle urged parents to bring young children. Some 20 or 30 years ago, Stradbrook was one of the worst places in the neighbourhood. A respectable professor could hardly ride through without being insulted or very likely his hat would be knocked off his head. Now, a quieter and more orderly parish is hardly found. Ryle the man, Ryle the minister, and then Ryle the missionary. You may think that's a strange description, but uh, Ryle was a missionary. He was concerned to see people converted and then built up in the faith. He wanted in today's jargon not just decisions, but disciples. Uh, or theologically, he wanted people to be not only justified, but sanctified. Packer speaks of Ra's agenda uh, and that he aimed at four things. The evangelizing of English people, the purging of the English national church, the uniting of English Christians, and the holiness of English believers. His standpoint was unashamedly evangelical. From the 1850s, Raoul became nationally known for his uncompromising evangelical exposition. Uh, his expository, expository preaching uh, through his attending at meetings in London and preaching in London, uh, his tracts and his larger publications. But uh, the major part of this literary work was completed during the period he was at Stradbrook. Tracts, which were more than brightly coloured leaflets with a few texts, but serious uh, short papers, that's what tracts were in those days, were already famous through the Oxford movement with the Newman and Keeble and Pugin. That, of course, was called the Tractarian movement. Ryle saw the potential and these tracts were the main vehicle of Ryle's missionary work. So uh, he began to adapt his sermons into tracts with uh, suitably striking titles like Have You a Priest or Do You Want a Friend or Are You Happy? And before long Ryle's name was widely known both in Britain and throughout the world. Millions of copies of his tracts were produced and then formed and bound together into collections first called Home Truths and subsequently, they form parts, uh, part of other works. His first tract had a tragic origin and was literally a tract for the times. On the 9th of May, 1845, a large crowd had gathered for the official opening of a new suspension bridge in Great Yarmouth. The bridge suddenly collapsed during the ceremony and over 100 people were thrown into the water and drowned. The disaster shocked the whole country and Ryle took the opportunity to write a pamphlet on the theme of life's uncertainties and God's sure provision of salvation in Christ. And thousands of copies were sold. Now let me allow Ryle to summarise his major writings himself. I'm again going to give another, uh, well at this time give you an extended quote 
of Ryle, this time from his preface to Practical Religion, uh, a collection of uh, uh, the first opinion, 1870. I think we have a copy. Do we have an original? Where's he? Is he? There's four out in the bookstore. Of the original yeah. Practical Religion, yeah. Um, and this is a good summary of Ryle's work. The volume now, this is Ryle, the volume now in the reader's hands is intended to be a companion to two other volumes which I've already published, entitled Knots Untied and Old Paths. And as I say, remember, in all these um, uh, books, you've got tracks which are kind of, um, they were published separately, and then he, he formed them together into units uh, subsequently and uh, juggle them around. But uh, the, the basic books now uh, are made up of, uh, of tracks that went out independently originally. Uh, the volume now in the reader's hands is intended to be a companion to two other volumes which I have already published, entitled Knots Untied and Old Paths. Knots Untied consists of a connected series of papers systematically arranged about the principal points which form the subject of controversy among churchmen in the present day. All who take interest in such disputed questions as the nature of the church, the ministry, baptism, regeneration, the Lord's Supper, the real presence, worship, <coughs> confession, and the Sabbath will find them pretty fully discussed in knots untied. Old Paths consists of a similar series of papers about those leading doctrines of the gospel which are generally considered necessary to salvation the inspiration of scripture, sin, justification, forgiveness, repentance, conversion, faith, the work of Christ, and the work of the Holy Spirit are the principal subjects handled in old paths. The present volume, that's uh, Practical Religion, contains a series of papers about Practical Religion, and treats of the daily duties, dangers, experience and privileges of all who profess and call themselves true Christians. Read in conjunction with another work I have previously put out called Holiness, I think it will throw some light on what every believer ought to be, to do and expect. One common feature will be found in all the three volumes. I have out frankly at the outset and will not keep it back for a moment. The standpoint I have tried to occupy from first to last is that of an evangelical churchman. I say this deliberately and emphatically. After 40 years of Bible reading and praying, meditation and theological study, I find myself clinging more tightly than ever to evangelical religion and uh, more than ever satisfied with it. It wears well. It stands the fire. I know no system of religion which is better in the faith of it, I have lived for a, the third of a century, and in the faith of it, I hope to die. The plain truth is that I see no other ground to occupy and find no other rest for the sole of my foot. I lay no claim to infallibility and desire to be no man's judge. But the longer I live and read, the more I am convinced and persuaded that evangelical principles are the principles of the Bible, of the articles and prayer book, and of the leading divines of the Reformed Church of England. But what did Ryle mean by evangelical religion? This is what he says in Knots Untied. And, uh, uh, let me give you another extended quote. This is Ryle himself. 
the first leading feature of evangelical religion is the absolute supremacy it assigns to Holy Scripture as the only rule of faith and practice. Show us anything plainly written in that book, and however trying to flesh and blood, we will receive it, believe it, and submit to it. Show us anything as religion which is contrary to that book, and however specious, plausible, beautiful, and apparently desirable, we will not have it at any price. Here is rock, all else is sand. The second leading feature in evangelical religion is the depth and prominence it assigns to the doctrine of human sinfulness and corruption. All men are not only in a miserable, pitiable and bankrupt condition, but in a state of guilt, imminent danger and condemnation before God. They are not only at enmity with their maker and have no title to heaven, but they have no will to serve their maker, no love to their maker and no meekness for heaven. Hence we protest with all our heart against formalism, sacramentalism and every species of mere external or vicarious Christianity. We maintain that all such religion is founded on an inadequate view of man's spiritual need. It requires nothing less than the blood of God the Son applied to the conscience and the grace of God the Holy Spirit entirely renewing the heart. Next to the Bible as its foundation, it, evangelical religion, is based on a clear view of original sin. The third leading feature of evangelical religion is the paramount importance it attaches to the work and office of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the nature of the salvation which he has wrought out for man. All who believe on him are, even while they live, completely forgiven and justified from all things, are reckoned completely righteous before God. We hold that an experiential knowledge of Christ crucified and interceding is the very essence of Christianity. And that in teaching men the Christian religion, we can never dwell too much on Christ himself and can never speak too strongly of the fullness, freeness, presentness, and simplicity of the salvation there is in him for everyone that believes. We say that life eternal is to know Christ, believe in Christ, abide in Christ, have daily heart communion with Christ by simple personal faith, and that everything in religion is useful so far as it helps forward that life of faith, but no further. Fourth, the fourth leading feature in evangelical religion is the high place which it assigns the inward work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of man. We maintain that the things which need most to be pressed on men's attention are those mighty works of the Holy Spirit, inward repentance, inward faith, inward hope, inward hatred of sin, inward love to God's law. We hold that an inward work of the Holy Ghost is a necessary thing to man's salvation so also it is a thing that must be inwardly felt. There can be no real conversion to God, no creation in Christ, no new birth of the Spirit, where there is nothing felt and experienced within. We insist that where there is nothing felt within the heart of a man, there is nothing really possessed. The fifth and last leading feature in evangelical religion is the importance which attaches to the outward and visible work of the Holy Ghost in the life of man. The true grace of God is a thing that will always make itself manifest in the conduct, behavior, tastes, ways, choices, and habits 
of him who has it. It is not a dormant thing. To tell a man he is born of God or regenerated while he is living in carelessness or sin is a dangerous delusion. Where there is the grace of the Spirit, there will always be more or less fruit of the Spirit. Where there is nothing seen, there is nothing possessed. Well, there is Ryle the man, Ryle the minister and Ryle the missionary. I've said nothing about Ryle the bishop. That is because Ryle was not perfect. I tried to make all the staff at uh, JPC read one of the original papers in Knots Untied, now reprinted in uh, Warnings to the Churches, which you can get outside in the original version. Uh, That's entitled The Fallibility of Ministers. His argument is that the Bible alone is infallible. Christian leaders can fail and do fail. Ryle, the reformers were honoured instruments in the hand of God for reviving the cause of truth on earth, yet hardly one of them can be named who did not make some great mistake. Uh, Another of Ryle's books that I reread every year and try to get as many others to read it as I can is Christian Leaders of the 18th Century. Is that on the bookstall? Have we got... I hope we've got lots of copies of that. That is a must-read, you know. Do take it home and read it. Because it's Ryle's theology, philosophy in... Easy, easy terms, reading these character studies. And the introductory uh, article is a, is a wonderful uh, article of evangelical theology and uh, an analysis of the time. So, Christian leaders of the 18th century, if you get nothing else, get that. And, and read it when you've got it. Um, <laughs> but those men were remarkable, those leaders of the 18th century. But two of them, Ra reminds us, abused each other in most shameful language. He's referring to Wesley and Top Lady. And Ryle made mistakes as a bishop in Liverpool. Not doctrinal mistakes, but managerial mistakes, I would judge. And it would take another paper to explain. Uh, in simple terms, I think Ryle saw the need for biblical truth and the recovery of biblical truth, absolutely. But he was less clear in seeing the need for leadership skills and an understanding of the dynamics of a large organisation such as this new diocese. Uh, Ryle could lead remarkably well in a small environment using his own personality and personal gifts. But in a large diocese and trying to motivate people indirectly as well as directly uh, was another matter. To be fair on Ryle, uh, many other bishops in the Church of England did far worse. The root problem was the problem that is now with us in the Church of England. The church was getting so comprehensive that it was getting unmanageable. With ritualists and liberals defying the unifying theology of the articles and the uh, prayer book. But of course he did much good. Uh, in Liverpool. His significant work, however, undoubtedly came through his writing, and most of this was completed at Stradbrook. Finally, those two questions. Why was Ryle not read, and why is he still not read? And secondly, and more simply, and more easily answered, why should he be read? Why was he not read? Answer, evangelicals in the Church of England were captured Uh, too many of them, by the 19th century second blessing movement of instant holiness, to which Ra's holiness was both a protest and an answer. Then uh, many middle-of-the-road Anglicans were captured by liberal theology that surrendered the authority of the Bible to the authority of human reason. And uh, old-fashioned high churchmen were captured by Romanizing Anglo-Catholicism that surrendered the authority of the Bible to the authority of the visible church and church tradition. So Ra was a lone voice 
uh, crying in the wilderness too often. He's still not read, sadly, for the same reasons. The Bible, by too many, is no longer held as a supreme authority. Why should it be read? Because the Bible is our supreme authority. And Ryle is a brilliant expositor of biblical religion and a br brilliant expositor of the Bible. And if you doubt that, start reading his expository thoughts <coughs> on the Gospels. And we've got a new um, appliance tonight. Uh, this one, I think, hangs in the air, but you're not to ask a question until the microphone is placed near enough your mouth for it to be heard. So who's got the first question, please? Miss Towns. This is a very simple question. If one has never read anything by Ryle, where should one start? Um, well, I, I think uh, that Christian leaders of the 18th century is probably as easy as any. I mean, you, you just read one chapter and um, then come back to it, read the next one. Uh, and they are successive biographies. It starts with Whitfield, then goes on to Wesley and so forth. And one, uh, because Ryle is a great storyteller, he writes simply... Um, uh, you, you, you get through, as it were, to the doctrinal issues through example. So I definitely would commend that. Um, and also, for, for someone who sort of wants a simple kind of theological introduction, you could read the little book, again I would recommend the original version, Warnings to the Churches. It's interesting, Warnings to the Churches uh, were the last chapters, are the last chapters of Knots Untied, because... I was given a copy of Knots Untied, first of all, by one of my colleagues. I think it was the first Ryle I'd got. And I read it, and I found it uh, very stimulating. Then I got a second-hand copy. Someone else gave me a copy. And I noticed the last chapters in that edition, which came out probably, in, I don't know when it was published, maybe in the mid-1920s or something like that, <laughs> had cut out these last chapters, which I think people already thought were too hot to handle. Quite seriously, and uh, which means, you know, go and read them because uh, there must be something in them. So uh, the, what happened was the Banner of Truth Trust then published them together as a separate little bunch called Warnings to the Church. And that is, in that, there is the fallibility of ministers, plus a lot of others. Right, Shirley, you'll be the first to buy one tonight. Um, I know that. Any, any, some more questions, please. Lady over here. rather frightening, isn't it? Um, I believe he said right at the end of the talk about the second blessing of instant holiness. What is that? Well, um, this was called Pearsall Smithism, I think. Uh, that um, It was the beginning, actually, of the Keswick movement where the, there was the, the, the teaching that you were converted and justified, but by faith... Um, you could get instant holiness and sinlessness, uh, which is very difficult to reconcile with um, Paul's teaching in Galatians. Uh, and Ra was very worried by this. If you want um, 
an interesting personal testimony of the problem, problematics of that teaching. If you look at one of the editions of Holiness, which came, has come out, Holiness has been reprinted, that's the Ralph's Holiness, at several points. And Jim Packer wrote a preface to uh, one of them. And in it, um, he gives a testimony of himself, how when he was at Oxford, he, in the, must be in the 1940s, he came across this teaching and it upset him and didn't know what to believe. And suddenly he came across Ralph's Holiness and he suddenly got... Uh, in encouragement. And, uh, I mean, in simple terms, theologically, I mean, Paul in, in Galatians, um, you know, if we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. That, in fact, um, uh, of course, uh, we are justified by faith freely. It's entirely uh, of God. But when we have that new principle of the Holy Spirit with us, we ourselves uh, act as agents cooperating with the Spirit. And it came across, too, with his teaching on Raoul, his teaching on sermon preparations, because in that lecture he gave to the clergy at St. Paul's Cathedral on simplicity in preaching, um, he mentioned that there were some people who said what they needed for preparing sermon was more faith, whereas um, he was arguing what they needed was more application, as someone put it, to the seat of the pants, to the seat of the chair, that um, there's no gains without pains, he quotes. And uh, as Christians... Um, someone said that um, we can't uh, expect God to work for us because God wants to work through us and by us. Uh, we have to be working. And uh, there was this teaching in terms of spiritual holiness that um, uh, by an act of faith, you could be instantly made... Uh, uh, by a consecration, it was. Instant consecration and instant sinlessness. And it was quite dodgy. Now, may I say, the Keswick movement has changed in time, and Hanny Mole, I think, um, helped that transition away from that, from some of the early Keswick teachers, which may be one of the reasons why Mole was more read than Raoul, because a range of uh, evangelicals who'd been sucked into that would listen to Mole more than they would listen to Raoul. Raoul attacked it head on. Uh, Raoul wasn't a sort of chap to bother with too much tact when he found things grossly uh, wrong. Uh, Mole was a, a much gentler character. And, um, well, I'll leave that with you. What? Let go, let God, was it? That's the sort of thing, yes. Yeah. Let, John says, let go, let God. Um, it was a catchphrase. Yes. I mean, there's, you can understand how um, you need to read holiness, actually, to, uh, to know the nuances of it. I'm not a great expert in Pierce or Smith. I mean, sadly, uh, it uh, all got very dodgy in the end, and you know, then there was kind of questionable morality came in, you know, as happens with much of this sort of thing, and so forth. I think Mr. Haig has a question over there. <laughs> About Ra's cricketing performance? Or? <laughs> no, we'll leave that to the Australians, I think, later on in the week. I think, David, you said that Ryle himself said that he felt humiliation every day of his life for, for 30 years. Mm -hmm. If, on visiting a member of his parish, uh, he was asked, how do I cope with this feeling of humiliation, what would Ryle have said? I don't know. Um, I mean, Ryle... I mean, this, is, this was the, the fact. He was a Victorian of the Victorians, and he... Was, and there are things in Ryle which um, 
I haven't got into it, which, you know, you, 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 you do ask, you know, you have cautions about. He was a remarkable man, and we still just read him. Um, but uh, he was very much aware of the difference between the classes. And I think, uh, uh, I mean, he probably felt too strongly that, you know, you were born into a, a class situation. And um, he probably felt he was particularly humiliated, in which case some others might not have been quite so <laughs> humiliated. Um, but on the other hand, he was a, a very um, generous man, and he tried to help people. I think he would have said that, um, uh, you know, God sends you all these uh, situations for your own spiritual good. Um, it's quite interesting that when he was in Helmingham, uh, that was his tiny village, and it was a squirearchy. There was Ryle at the church and the squire, who was a Protestant evangelical Christian, also a sportsman. And they got a well, there's Georgina Tolomark. I don't know how, uh, I've only read this stuff. I've never heard anyone talk about it. Is it Tolomarker or Tolomarch or what? But that's the name of the family who had the living of the parish. Um, was it a crown of arms? I can't remember. But, but he was... Um, very distinguished and Ryle was in touch with the powers that be because they used to come to the manor uh, all sorts of distinguished people from London and well-connected people and, and Georgina the wife was a very fine Christian woman and Ryle got on very well with her I think from his early days of conversion he, he had contact with her somehow I mean that sort of upper crust circle you know knew everybody and um, sadly she died uh, just at the time really of his second wife's death and then there was just Ryle and, and John left. Now, they were both very self-willed guys. And um, sadly, the last year or two in the parish, before he went to Stradbrook and married again, they were hardly speaking to each other. And uh, Ryle had his reasons, and, and the, the other guy had his reasons. And I think it was just personality kind of incompatibilities. And so Ryle was probably quite capable of interpreting situations to his advantage. So when he came across someone like that, um, I just don't know. I mean, I, I think uh, there were... There, he had huge gifts to draw, but he wasn't, um, he wasn't perfect. And I imagine his personal pastoral counselling may not have been brilliant. Uh, although he was able to apply the scripture to in a, a level of generality, which people, very simple people, as well as very sophisticated people, could actually see, yes, that's right. Um, I'm not sure how good he was, because people did talk about his aloofness, and he didn't suffer fools. I mean, he was a hugely intelligent guy. And it was not that he was nasty, but I just think, um, uh, you know, he probably was not, by instinct, a sort of... Uh, although he had great sympathy, as he said in that quote, you know, you don't have to shout and scream to be really feeling things. He was not a kind of woozy... So it may have meant people didn't relate well to him. But his second wife, I think, the third wife, she was someone probably who people could relate to, which was one of the reasons why he was so happy with her. Uh, John at the back here. Just keep your heads down. In, in one of his books, <clears throat> he quotes Jeremiah 31, saying, Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles far off, etc. Uh, he, he, believes, he believed that uh, Britain was amongst the nations to whom Jeremiah spoke. Uh, did he adhere to the British Israel evangel 
and how, how much of his work was on prophecy? Um, he, uh, he, 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 he did... Um, I don't know if he has anything to do with British Israel. I'm not um, too familiar with the history of British Israelitism. Um, Raoul was certainly not uh, uh, big on prophecy, but he was a premillennialist. Uh, that is to say that um, uh, he thought that um, uh, Christ would come and then there would be the thousand years, as you know. And um, uh, he did write a book on that. It's quite interesting that a number of uh, the biographies, and Packer doesn't seem to mention it in his biography, which um, I've only read once, and uh, I you know, reread and, and scanned a number of things for tonight, I didn't. Uh, that was the one thing I still have got to, you know. I underline in my books all the, the interesting bits, you know. And uh, I have to confess, I didn't have time to go through that. But what I um, understand is it wasn't big in Ryle's, nothing to do with British Israelitism. I mean, I happen to be, uh, I mean, if if one uh, is sure of these things and one isn't, um, one trusts God. I mean, I think. Uh, that the book of Revelation uh, has certain things that are clear and some things are, you know, we wait for heaven to be sure about, don't we? Um, like some of the things in scripture elsewhere. Um, I would be, I suppose, uh, an amillennialist in the sense that I think it's talking about uh, the, the nature of the church now, that Christ is going to return, the exact details of that. When he comes, we will know it because every eye will see. Uh, the mechanics of it, I think we have to wait till it happens. We will recognise the truth of it when it comes. So I, I'm more cautious than probably Ra was. Um, but it didn't um, affect his... In, I don't think it affected much of his teaching. He was supportive of um, uh, movements to convert the Jews, of course. Um, I hope we all should be. Um, but uh, it wasn't a big thing. But it was, it was there. And uh, none of the studies... These new books by Eric Russell or the book by Farley or Packers uh, have done a great deal on that. And I would like someone to write on that, just for my, my own uh, uh, information and interest. Because, um, you know, to, to go into these things in detail, you have to know your sources. You have to do a lot of research. Um, but uh, I'm not too clear exactly on the details of that. But I do know uh, that he's a proven analyst. Um, David, uh, as you said, uh, Ryle uh, died a member of the Church of England. He was a minister in the Church of England. Would you just elaborate a little bit more on, on why he was a minister in the Church of England and what he thought was good about it? Yes, I mean, uh, Ryle was, uh, was adamant because um, he believed that the... Th which is my view, I mean, uh, I have to say, that the 39 Articles, and I, I say this unashamedly, and the... Um, the doctrine of the 39 Articles, which should condition your uh, reading of the Book of Common Prayer, as a basis of theology, is as good as anything, uh, anywhere, which is the nearest to the Bible. Um, and uh, he, would not, uh, he would not yield on that. I mean, his concern and his, 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 um, his great... Uh, Sadness was that the, the 1662 Act of Uniformity uh, drove out um, very good uh, clergy from the Church of England to become uh, dissenters, and many of them Presbyterians, which he thought was totally unnecessary and could have been avoided. Um, but given that, and uh, 
I mean, looking then down history, as I'm afraid I do, I, I see many of those ending up as Unitarians and, uh, you know, not, uh, I mean, not those same men, but that tradition went Unitarian, a lot of that, and um, ran into the, the sand. So did, of course, a number of the people who stayed in the Church of England. Um, but he had no, um, no qualms, like many of us to do today, that the, the Church of England's basis in the doctrine, the, the key doctrine is still the same, that uh, Canon A5 of the Church of England, the doctrine of the Church of England, is grounded in the Holy Scriptures and such teachings of the ancient councils and fathers of the Church as is agreeable thereto. Such teaching is found in the 39 Articles of Religion, Book of Common Prayer and the Ordinal. And Ryle would say that is, uh, uh, I would say, that's the, you know, when I'm cynical, that's the least worst of all the Church kind of <laughs> orders. Uh, Ryle would say uh, that that was a very good position. So he had no apologies. What he, he was worried about and what he said was that um, many of the clergy were defying that. And they were. Um, and he argued the Tractarians were defying that. And he got into a, a serious set of problems uh, in his own diocese um, uh, over a clergyman who was uh, uh, defying the rubrics and you know the canons and everything and it was was going very was going in a romanizing direction, and um, he uh, was very worried by in 1818-60 the essays and reviews, which was a, a, a liberal document where many Anglican or number of distinguished Anglican theologians were buying into a lot of German liberalism, and he saw that as a, a serious inroad, which defied you know uh, Canon uh, Article 20, which argues, you know, that you must interpret scripture by scripture and all that sort of thing. So Ryle was, had no problems with the church. He had problems with the way a number of clergy were actually operating, which is the same problem today. So that's why he, uh, you know, he actually believed it to be the best option. Yes, there's a question. Can you take the, just over here. Mr. Nags. <clears throat> Continuing the theme of involvement in the Church of England, I'm thinking um, in the Puritan tradition there was, um, or there has been over the last uh, century, movements of Anglicans and uh, um, free church people like John Stott and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones having good fellowship together. Uh, what about... Um, Bishop Ryan, say, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Was there a, a relationship there which was happy? Well, they thought, they, uh, yes, uh, they thought well of each other um, because um, Spurgeon, uh, I mean, um, Ryle, uh, in that uh, simplicity of preaching, uh, if you read it, uh, mentioned Spurgeon quite specifically. Uh, he, uh, uh, going on... Um, when he, he, he argues you must know what you're uh, talking about in his first point, or was that effect, he uh, says it's quite helpful, therefore, to be able to kind of put into divisions your, uh, your sermon. And he said, uh, uh, he mentions first three points, first, second, and third, and he said there's a lot of controversy about that. But he basically said, if you read Spurgeon, that's what he did. I mean, he had such clear divisions, and he quite often has three points and he commended Spurgeon as a model of um, construction of sermons. So he spoke well of Spurgeon, and uh, Ryle 
spoke well of, I mean, Spurgeon spoke well of Ryle. I don't know whether they, they met. I just don't know enough about it. I'm not uh, sufficiently expert on that. I, I haven't recorded their meeting. It's not been recorded. But I would have thought they must have uh, met at some point. But in, equally, Spurgeon was such a distinguished figure. Um, Ryle was distinguished, but he was, in one sense, very humble. Uh, Spurgeon was enormously influential. I mean, I think, was it, I'm sure, when he died, I think the Queen lent him one of her coaches, you know. The funeral was just enormous in London. I mean, Spurgeon was uh, monolithic. And Ryle probably thought, although globally, I mean, because of the the Church of England and uh, the missions overseas, which were mostly, well, obviously there were free churches, there were a lot of Anglican missions. I mean, he was read all over the world and probably didn't realise how significant he was. Whereas Spurgeon was pretty obvious because he preached to thousands every Sunday. Whereas there's Ryle in Stradbrook, you know, a little village church. And Stradbrook had more, had I think probably, was about 1,200 parishioners, um, you know, in the village. So he had, it was a small church. And when you're in the middle of Suffolk, you, you can't think of yourself as a kind of global figure. Whereas a metropolitan tabernacle with literally thousands of people, it felt a bit different. I know there are more questions. I'd like to just ask a, a silly question. I know you have reservations about Ryle as a bishop in terms of his strategy, but it would seem to me as a teaching bishop and a preaching bishop, he was first rate. Oh, yes. And I would want to say that most of our leaders today, bishops and others, talk so much nonsense. Uh, is that to do with the fact, I always say that is because many of them have spent their lives in theological colleges totally distant from just rubbing shoulders with ordinary folk. Now, whether he be aloof or not, he did seem to spend a lot of his life actually rubbing shoulders with his parishioners. Do you think that matters? Yes, I mean, I, I think um, there's undoubtedly uh, Ryle, uh, and from what one can uh, get from his preaching, I mean, his theology and what he said when he was in the pulpit was the same wherever he went. Um, I just simply think that, uh, there, that, that Ryle's background, as I say today, I mean, there's, dare I say it, there's a... a, 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 a uh, appointment being made to the um, See of Canterbury uh, of a man who's never been in a parish, really. And, um, well, Ryle had been in actual, even that they were village churches, you know, I mean, at least yeah. had, had been in a parish. Um, but uh, he hadn't dealt with large groups, he hadn't dealt with staffs of people. He had one, he had a curate at Stradbrook. Um, but no, no, Ryle, um, because he was in touch with people, he preached the gospel. Um, Brilliantly. And, and, of course, he was supportive he, of Moody and Sankey. I mean, he was cautious of uh, kind of too much emotion in evangelism, but he supported Moody and Sankey uh, considerably and uh, was on their platforms. And so he was there to do that sort of thing. And, no, he was a great... He, was a great, he always was a great preacher. Uh, There's a gentleman in the front row, gentleman. From a broader perspective... What do you think Ryle would have made of the contemporary uh, ecumenical momentum? Um, well, Ryle um, thought it was important that Christians should relate, or at least be in conversation with each other. Um, I think sometimes Ryle probably overestimated the value of, of that. Uh, Ryle spent a great deal of his time teaching about real Christians and unreal Christians. Um, but the reality is, of course, in 
the visible church, which he was very strong on teaching the distinction between the visible and the church mystical. Um, if you've got too many unreal Christians, uh, it's very hard to have kind of conversations which will actually be creative. Ryle um, espoused the church congresses and then does and conferences in ways in which a lot of evangelicals didn't. Um, now, in one sense, that was good. In one sense, it was bad. I think um, there is a temptation with some people who have a strong doctrine of original sin not to follow it through and realize that round the table there's a great deal of original sin. Whereas when you're sitting at a table in a kind of church context uh, discussing major theological points and everybody seems so nice and polite and courteous, it's very hard to see the devil around, you know. Um, which is the problem with ecumenical contact. I mean, I think Christians should work for unity. And I think... Um, that uh, initially there should be conversations. But once the positions are established, sorry, speaking personally now, I mean, uh, you know, I think you should talk to everybody. But once I find a bishop or someone who goes into print saying that he thinks homosexual relationships are right, and that's in print, he doesn't recount, that's that. There's no more conversation until he changes. That's my position. So I don't think further discussion is going to help the issue. Uh, it's his job then to... Now, sure, I will write and make arguments and so forth, but just by discussion in a kind of vacuum way, thinking that by mutual understanding of each other, we will come to a change of mind, I think is Cloud Cuckoo Land. And that is the danger. And I have to say, um, I mean, just, sorry, this is, uh, sorry, I, 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 John thinks Ra's great, I think Ra's great. I don't want to end up by sort of being critical of Ra. But I mean, on one occasion, Ra uh, thought of the, you asked a question about the parish, he thought the parish system was wonderful. Well, Raoul also sort of, um, when the reality came into Manchester, saw the parish system wasn't quite so wonderful because, you know, you've got clergy in charge of these vast parishes. This was at the time of Liverpool. Mo Liverpool was the second city in Britain and it was mu multiplying bodies uh, at a terrific rate. And um, people were coming from all over the world, immigrants as well. And you've got these guys in, in parishes, you know, thousands of people in their parishes and doing hardly anything. Sweet Fanny Adam, you know. And um, legally, as a bishop, he had to, well, he was a straight stickler for keeping to the law, which got him into trouble on one or two occasions. Um, because, uh, first of all, with regard to um, uh, evangelism, um, he saw the need for doing something in these parishes. But these guys, you see, you have a freehold if you're an active clergyman. And he, in one sense, can't just deny that. And, um, but he said, uh, you know, what we need to do is put evangelists who go into these parishes and uh, they can be given a part of it and they can evangelize. You know, good guys. And so he says, what do we need to do? We need to set up a diocesan committee to choose them. Well, as on the diocesan committee, you've got half the people who are causing the problems. You know, this is not the way you actually solve it. Do you see what I mean? I mean, this is, this is the, after a bit when you've involved with church politics, you just see how all these things work. But Ryle was a godly guy coming from the sticks, and, and they were living as they were, they were going on. Um, I mean, I, I think that um, uh, with regard to, yes, with regard to the law, um, there was this uh, uh, case of this clergyman who another person wanted to prosecute because he got very much involved with court cases, and um, he refused to uh, exercise his veto uh, over this case 
because he, the bishops were allowed to exercise a veto to prevent the case going forward. But he felt the law must take its course. And he did that not because he wanted the case. He, he really wanted the chap to withdraw it. This was a Protestant attacking an Anglo-Catholic. And sadly, the case went through, and it caused a lot of difficulty. The guy was in prison, and of course, that is the, it was a great victory for the Anglo-Catholics at that point, because, you know, uh, to be the victim is to get the high moral ground, which was the case in Newcastle with Ed Mole. I mean, that was once in the best thing that the diocese took, you know, him to court, or Ken Mulder. And uh, immediately, all the sympathy goes with the victim. And there was an awful lot of this legal stuff going on in the last century, which is one of the reasons why I myself, when the Bishop of Durham saga came on, said that we shouldn't use courts, you know, the courts anymore. Because evangelicals have been using the courts right from the last century, which is, so this is digression, but it's very important for where the Church of England is, for those of you who are Anglicans here now, that uh, in the background and history to a lot of Anglic evangelical Anglicans, there's this whole, we must keep the law mentality, right? Uh, church law, which is messed up with state law, and it's, it's all very confusing. Um, but my own conviction at the time of the Bishop Down was that um, you know, if you take, if you use the law of the church, which is messed in with the state law, you slightly transgress, you know, 1 Corinthians 6, you know, going to court before the Gentiles. So I didn't think that was right. But on the other hand, you can't just let nothing, let the thing be, which is where we're at now, with the, the current Archbishop of, uh, proposed Archbishop of Canterbury. And therefore, we have to be irregular to keep, as it were, true to the, the higher canons. It's a very complicated, those of you who are Anglicans understand this a bit, but, um, but at the time of Ryle and the evangelicals, why some evangelicals are now a bit worried of people having to, to be irregular, is because the, their consciousness, there's this, we'll keep the law and we will use the courts, we will be the people who stick to the rubrics and the rules, you know, whereas these dreadful Anglo-Catholics are breaking the rules, do you follow? And, of course, what happened, Ra played that, and, and, in fact, it lost. I mean, at the end of his um, episcopate, the Catholics were much, much stronger in the Liverpool diocese than at the start. Um, now, that's not a fault on Ra's. All I'm saying is that it's easy with hindsight to see how these things work, you know. But Ryle um, was a great man of God. He preached the gospel, and, uh, as I say, what is, fortunately, and in one sense, it's only if you read uh, charges and... Oh, I can't address and addresses that um, you read all those speeches. And can I say they're very good, very good. I mean, because um, he's crystal clear in what he wants. Uh, my own view is, with hindsight, is that the way, and he, he can't be blamed really, that the way it evolved and the, solving those problems actually were counterproductive sometimes. But he was a great man. And uh, as I say, what we've got now is, which is great, is all the expository material and which is I think invaluable and um, I mean to be a in the church and today we all need in churches we need two things, we need biblical literacy as I put it, which is being absolutely crystal clear on the Bible and the truth of the Bible but also we need leadership which is under the Bible but that is more than just being biblically literate uh, Ra was probably the most literate biblically of anybody in the 19th century and praise God for that <laughs>